Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I got a little bit caught up with singing along with that. <laughs> and I forgot to I forgot to motion to fade it. All right. Hi, this is Colin. Welcome to the show. You know, I was just thinking before we went on the air, I think it's Churchill who said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other options. And you could sort of say that needles are the worst form of administering various kinds uh, of medical relief and, and, and prevention, except for all the other options. Uh, I mean, needles, you know, we have a pretty complicated relationship with needles, and some percentage of humanity is phobic enough about them to skip out on vaccinations. We're going to talk about that in the kind of second half of the show. And meanwhile, there's hundreds of thousands of accidental needle sticks every year, stuff. You know, there's ways in which you think, wow, is there some better way to do this? And, and there sort of is, and I think in the future probably will be. But meanwhile, the story of medicine and the story of needles uh, have been kind of intertwined since at least the 1650s. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the history and development of all this because it's really interesting. Uh, and to do that, uh, we have with us for, as our first guest, uh, Dr. Jeremy Green, professor of science, technology, and medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to our show. Uh, thanks so much, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. So it doesn't 100% start in the 1650s because, I mean, the ancients knew that you could get things into the body subcutaneously that would have certain effects. And the people who taught them that were snakes and shooters of poisoned arrows. Uh, it was sort of clear that you could pierce the skin, get something in there and have, in that case, a pretty big negative effect. But there was a long, long march from there to anything that we would think of uh, as a subcutaneous injection, right? Well, when we write histories of the of Western medicine, there's a long tradition of, of this sort of progress of knowledge following an Enlightenment tradition. How do we get to be so smart? And oftentimes these start in the 17th century with European, uh, you know, uh, naturalists and experimenters um, designing what then later becomes known as modern science. And I think you're right that there are many other pathways through which injection enters into different healing traditions. But the story that's often told in Western history of medicine starts in, you know, when you mentioned the 1650s, you're alluding to the work of Sir Christopher Wren of the Royal Society in England, who does this demonstration with hollowed out quills attached to a bladder to inject a dog at Oxford with alcohol intravenously and demonstrate the intoxication of this dog. And therefore this mode of administrating a substance directly into the veins of a living subject. And so that's the piece that gets a lot of the drama in the kind of heroic history of right. needles, if, if there is one. And let's just pause and say, we could do a whole show on Christopher Wren. We probably will at some point. But I mean, so here's the guy who's, you know, I mean, arguably, certainly one of the greatest 
Western architects in history, maybe the greatest architect, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years of English history. And he's an astronomer. I think he's also a geologist. And what else is he doing in his spare time? He's figuring out how to do uh, the one of the first things that we would recognize as an intravenous injection. Uh, and, and and he's doing it with dogs, and they're using wine and eventually, I think, opium too. Um, and and we should probably also say. That from the from the onset, from the outset, there was an interest, and there should be an interest, uh, in putting things into the body, uh, whether they're they are anesthetics or medicines or vaccines, and getting stuff out of the body too. You want to be able to draw blood, uh, which is kind of you know the other thing we use this system for, right? Well, I think thinking about the, the needle as a two-way device is really quite important, right? So that the history of pharmacology, we tend to focus on the drugs themselves, but um, pharmacists and pharmacologists will tell us that the mode of administration of a drug is also important. So what it means to have this pathway that is intravenous therapy, right? Or other forms of needle therapy, which, which would be just sort of intramuscular injections or you know subcutaneous injections, that these all open up different pathways by which the same therapeutic compound might actually take on some different properties and meanings. Um, but also, as you point out, being able to draw blood and being able to then draw blood for this broader purpose of what we then think of this world of diagnostic testing, that a blood test becomes such a meaningful part of medical modernity, in, especially in the 20th century, early 21st century, that you know, all of us are accustomed to this right now. I shouldn't say all of us, perhaps, but the idea that when one goes to a doctor's office or a hospital, a blood test might be part of a diagnostic pathway. Well, that's not a revolutionary idea. It's kind of a banal everyday expectation. And I think that's what I find so fascinating about the history of the hypodermic syringe, of the needle, is that it's something we've learned not to see because it's become an everyday object in our lives. But when you start talking about Christopher Wren, Wren you know, basically affixing a, a porcupine quill to a hollowed out bladder, it suddenly seems very strange. And so part of the goal of, part of one of the roles of historical analysis is to make strange that which we take for granted and ask why it took the course it did. Right. Um, and I would, you know, we know nobody really enjoys needles. I'm assuming a quill really didn't it was would have been pretty painful, but it was a dog, so we can't interview him. Um, so it is the policy of this show, and I apologize in advance for it, to highlight the achievement of, of Irish people, perhaps in a way that uh, inflates uh, their their actual contributions. <laughs> but it is worth notice, noting that arguably, here in the West anyway, uh, the first uh, injection of a human patient with a hypodermic uh, syringe may have been performed by uh, Francis Rind. Uh, the patient was named Margaret Cox. So this is all happening in Dublin. She had a terrible pain in her face due to neuralgia. She tried drinking morphine solution to ease the pain. That wasn't working. So Rind designed a hypodermic needle. I don't think we would recognize it very well. It had like a sort of a lot of moving parts, so to speak. But um, but this may be the first time that something like that happened. It was pretty quickly superseded by something better uh, by a Scottish, pains me to say, Scottish uh, physician named Alexander Wood. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that period, because we've really vaulted 200 years ahead uh, of Christopher Wren. I mean, for a long time, we really still didn't have uh, anything that we would rec really would, would, would rep uh, recognize as a hypodermic syringe. 
So it, it's, I, I, it's, it's a, I'm glad you're pulling all of this out, Colin. And, and again, I wouldn't claim myself as, a, as being able to give a comprehensive guide to what happens between the 17th and the 19th century in all forms of proto-syringes. Certainly the, the kinds of narratives that are later told in the 20th century about this thing, the hypodermic syringe, reaches back to the work of Alexander Wood or to Charles uh, uh, Provaz in, in France. Um, in developing these metal objects that are, you know, made entirely of metal, a metal barrel, a metal needle, and a metal plunger, that this is part of history looking backwards that take on the form that we can identify as a standardized syringe. Um, and it's later in the 1860s that the metal barrel is replaced with a glass barrel, partly so that one can see the volume and the you know, gradations of volume can be etched on the glass barrel to actually measure precisely the amount being injected as well. Um, and I wanna point out that, that these are part of a set of broad movements happening in um, medicine in, in Europe and North America and many parts of the world, which is moving towards um, quantification, precision, standardization through tools that can perform a, uh, a practice of scientific medicine. Um, so these developments in this rather, what we think of as a pedestrian technology, the syringe, became very important to physicians self-fashioning in Europe and North America and elsewhere, um, and then differentiating themselves from other healers as well and in claiming an increasing role in the production of a medical science, which later, be, later becomes called you know, biomedical sciences, uh, especially in the late 19th century. And the syringe is part of it. It's part of inculcating a form of laboratory culture into everyday practice in medicine. But you gotta figure, physicians are walking around with these syringes in their bags. They are, um, they're expensive tools. They're precise tools of the trade. Not everyone can get them. There's sort of fine, um, uh, manufacturing, local manufacturing knowledge, it needs to go into them. And, um, and they're, they're, they're taken very good care of. They're prized objects, they are used, they are cleaned, they are reused. Um, and it's it becomes part of the figure of the modern physician to have a syringe in one's bag. Right. I mean, just to sort of talk about that 150 to 200 year um, kind of progressive uh, period, which kind of looks like a gap from history. I, I mean, I think in there is Edward Jenner, who develops the idea of a vaccine, but he has to do it through a cut in an arm, I think. I mean, I think that's how he got it in. He didn't have a syringe he could put it in with. So, I mean, you sort of think about that. You think about now what we're looking at, these mass vaccination campaigns. And I assume vaccination at the level we're talking about right now, vaccinating essentially an entire planet, would be difficult to do even with the instruments that you just described, the ones that are carefully carried around in bags and sterilized in either boiling water or autoclaves or, or whatever. Uh, there's a way in which that still, there's going to be enough lag time there and maybe ultimately just because of human error or whatever, cross-contamination. There was a way in which we needed disposable syringes for the levels that we're talking about now. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's important. Um, part of what you're doing here is separating the longer history of inoculation and vaccination as a, as a public health practice from the syringe itself, mm -hmm. but then pointing out how the two become really indelibly connected um, over the course of the 20th century. So Jenner, you know, uh, before Jenner develops vaccination, there are already many existing processes practices of inoculation. So smallpox inoculation involves intentionally 
um, intentionally infecting someone, a healthy person, with uh, what was called matter, which is oftentimes pus or scrapings coming out of a smallpox lesion of someone who was actively infected, so that that person could experience the illness in a controlled environment and actually be more likely to withstand it and develop immunity. Um, now, this required basically, you know, cutting the skin, preserving mar uh, matter. What Jenner used was effectively a, a tool called, you know, an, an, an you know, he basically, basically designed this vaccinator, which did a similar thing, but um, you know, was was a was a, became a specialized tool in order to do so. And of course, the piece that made it vaccination was using another virus, right? Not smallpox, but cowpox, vaccinia. Which, none, which could have a lesser reaction and confer um, immunity. Um, so I, I, I think that it, it, it's only really later on that the syringe and the necessity of giving a subcutaneous injection with a standardized syringe becomes tied into the way that larger vaccination campaigns develop um, in the 19th and of course, in the, especially in the 20th century. Um, and I think, um, Part of what I hear you getting at here is the limitations of these, um, you know, these very well maintained, um, but um, but but more limited uh, glass and metal syringes, compared to the massive needs of large volumes of disposable syringes in 20th century vaccination campaigns. And by my reckoning, and again, I'm early on in my research here, that this the first um, widespread mobilization of disposable syringes for a worldwide vaccination campaign was in the in, in the 50s in the, in the efforts to mobilize polio vaccines and so developing disposable syringes and mobilizing them helped to potentiate the scale of administration of the polio vaccine in a very powerful way Right. So it's also the policy of our show to highlight and possibly overstate the accomplishments of people named Colin. Uh, so I, I feel some burden to mention Colin Murdoch, uh, an Australian, I think, pharmacist and veterinarian who invented the tranquilizer gun, uh, the childproof medicine container, and the disposable hypodermic syringe. Um, and, and so, yeah, suddenly you've got this tool where, I mean, it, it's obviously a double-edged sword here. It's It's got huge upsides and huge downsides. I mean, the down sides obviously uh, include the fact that uh, now I think 500 million uh, used needles are added to trash dumps and landfills every year. That might even be a low number for the period we're in right now. 75 million of those needles may be infected with uh, blood bloodborne infections. Uh, I mean, having disposable needles is great, except when it's not, right? So I, I'm fascinated by this history, and I'm fascinated by the figure of Colin, a figure of Colin Murdoch as well. And um, I, I'm trying to learn more about him. I, you know, as, as you point out, he's a he's a he's a pharmacist in New Zealand, and he's this, a, a tinkerer, sort of you know one of a, of, of many figures of amateur in, investigators and inventors in the middle of the 20th century that really just produced some remarkably useful platforms. Um, that are then forgotten about. And in many ways, Murdoch is, even though he he, he crops up in, uh, I say, like New Zealand's lists of most important new, you know, Kiwi inventors, he, he's not someone who is broadly talked about in the history of medicine, um, partly because I think the disposable syringe is the kind of thing that we forget about until something like your show today brings our attention back to it. Um, and so the, the, the story that, that I've come across has him coming up with the idea of a disposable syringe when um, just playing with a plastic ballpoint pen in the 50s 
And musing on this idea of a plastic disposable ballpoint pen is another somewhat, somewhat recent invention um, and, and recognizing that the same principle could be applied to, to the syringe. Um, he also invented the childproof bottle cap. And so all of these sort of vexing devices of you know, modern medical life that we don't know the origins on, a lot of them, so many of them seem to trace back to him. And as you point out, the tranquilizer dart, which I think he originally devised um, in order to help study a, a, a certain group of mountain goats in, in New Zealand. Um, but you know, Murdoch, Murdoch took out a limited patent on, on this. I don't think he ever really capitalized on inventing the disposable, um, the disposable syringe. And I think more of that happens in, in, the, in the face of industry that develops worldwide applications of this, including Roar, which then patented the Monoject disposable syringe in 1955, and um, Becton Dickinson, which developed the Plastipak in 1961. And uh, Becton Dickinson is a really interesting uh, company, and they've left some um, archives behind. They're, they're, they've uh, left materials to the Science History Institute in, in Philadelphia. So one can study in Beckton Dickinson, um, a company that produced a lot of the devices of modern medical life. Um, but it turns out that Beckton Dickinson's first sale was uh, a, a glass syringe back in 1899. So this is a company that was founded on the glass syringe. And then in the late 50s, recognized the potential of Murdoch's work and developed their own um, plastic syringe. And it was in 1961 that it was first marketed. So this year is the 60th birthday of the uh, of of their disposable syringe. Um, they've put out some celebrated celebratory materials to to celebrate that. Um, uh, what I've learned from from the, from some of their um, industrial history is that in 1977 they developed a contract with the World Health Organization to provide the Plastipak syringe to enable the global smallpox eradication effort and. This is, of course, one of a very, very small number of intentional, successful, intentional efforts to eradicate disease from the world. And so, um, I, again, you don't want to underestimate the impact that the disposable syringe had in fighting in, 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 you know, deadly infectious disease. Um, and also part of the appeal, right? Because as we've gone through the 20th century, so much more concern with contamination in uh, uh, the possibility of actually being infected by a, a contaminated medical device were resolved by producing sterile blister packed separate disposable syringes instead of reusing a needle. But as you point out, th this led to a set of decisions, which is part of how we now exist in a world in which there we produce tons and tons of medical waste each year. And that the, the the fate of medical waste, um, the environmental impact of medical waste, and also some of the political questions of, you know, whose health is affected by living near repositories of medical waste or by living near incinerators where medical waste is burned, um, emerges as a direct consequence of, of the sort of the downsides of medical disposability. So, you know, we uh, tend to use some of the, some terms kind of interchangeably. Uh, my understanding is 
uh, a syringe. You can have a syringe that doesn't have a needle in it. Uh, it's, uh, in fact, probably a lot of the initial things. It goes back to a Greek myth about a nymph uh, who was running away from Pan uh, and turned in, was turned into, in order to save her, uh, a bunch of reeds. Uh, and so the the Pan flute and, and the idea of a syringe are sort of oddly connected linguistically and historically and mythically. Um, and, and so it also makes me wonder, I, I want to circle back to a couple of other things before we go, but just at this moment, and I'm, I'm asking kind of a medical historian to do something that you probably don't like to do, which is talk about the future instead of the past. But I'm wondering if you think we're going to be having a conversation like this in 25 years. I mean, there there are, you know, right now, companies trying to develop nasal spray vaccines for, for COVID. Uh, obviously, many of us who grew up in the polio era, some of us took oral vaccines uh, even back then. There even are uh, apparently needle-free syringes right now that, that you know, that I don't know how widespread spread they are, but the, it's actually, uh, as I understand it, just like a, such a highly concentrated stream of liquid that it can get under the skin without the, the help of a needle. I, I'm wondering, as you look at this, are, are we going to be not talking about needles, the needle part of a syringe in, in a few decades? So I love that question, Colin, although you're right that as a historian, I spend a lot of time trying to convince people that I'm not a futurologist and don't have any special province on the future. But I do think that thinking historically helps us think about how we look ahead to the future. And one way of answering that question is to compare the different sort of futures that you get in different space operas uh, of visions of medicine that crop up in Star Trek yeah. versus Star Wars. And, you know, I think the Star Trek future of medicine is, is all there, right? You know, the, the, you have a tricorder. It can, you, nobody needs to poke you to actually get any blood samples to learn anything about you that you can just wave a wand and, and you know, your medical materials. Um, whereas the Star Wars vision is, is all poking and prodding. I think many of you, many listeners will remember like after after Luke Skywalker loses his hand, he's floating in a tank and lots of needles from this robot droids keep on poking into him. So there, there's utopian and dystopian medical futures that we're always living with. Right. Well, if you've um, ever if you ever tried to take uh, your Wookiee in for rabies vaccine, I mean, it's really, you know, it's it, a mess. It's a mess. It's a cumbersome problem. Yeah. So good point. But I do think that um, that the dream of um, what happens when you can move beyond the needle, um, there are a lot of historical examples we can point to that, that this has actually animated quite a bit of medical innovation. Um, the first book I wrote was a book about how drugs transform our understanding of disease. It's called Prescribing by Numbers. And mm -hmm. I took a look at three pills, and one was a pill for high blood pressure, and the other one was the first pill that was successful for the treatment of diabetes. Um, and both of these cases, like before the first, you know, successful oral antihypertensive medicine, most medicines for the treatment of high blood pressure were, were, were injectable. And as you might imagine, that really limited who would be treated for high blood pressure, right, on a pretty stark level. And so the emergence of, the, of high blood pressure as we think about it today, which most people experience as an asymptomatic condition, right? A disease of number and risk where you take these pills in order to lower your risk of a heart attack or stroke, that wasn't really possible or meaningful until the intervention itself was palatable enough that enough people would buy into it so that you could then even produce the knowledge to say that it really was effective. Um, so it took a pill and the pill I wrote about was diaryl chlorothiazide, um, which is still a prominently used generic antihypertensive medicine today. One of the effects of that pill was to help create, help broaden and create the reality of hypertension as an asymptomatic disease or disease of risk. And the same thing happened with diabetes. So 
in the case of diabetes, you know, many will know that this, this is the year that we are celebrating the hundredth anniversary of the invention of insulin. Insulin dramatically transformed the lives of people living with diabetes, especially type one diabetes, you know, which was an invariable fatal condition. Um, and yet the trade-off there involved living with a needle. And for many people, many people living with diabetes, learning to deal with the stigma of living with a needle in which they're often assumed to be to be junkies or to be, you know, in, injecting opioids, um, or, or then even just to admit that one needed a needle, that the needle became part of the stigma of living with diabetes. And so when the first oral med, successful oral drug for diabetes, which is tolbutamide, marketed by Upchine's Orinase in the late 50s came out, part of Upchine's marketing effort was freedom from the needle, that this oral anti-diabetes drug will give people living with diabetes the ability not to, not to not to need to have the needle anymore to avoid that stigma. Part of the challenge is it turned out this medicine worked quite well, but it didn't work well enough for people living with type one diabetes. So there's an irony here, which is that this medicine, this oral diabetes medicine became useful for expanding the boundaries of people living with type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, that's oftentimes seen as adult onset diabetes into making diabetes a disease of risk, like high, high blood pressure was. So many people, many listeners today, you know, maybe may, may have been diagnosed with diabetes, maybe undergoing this process or talking about pre-diabetes in which they don't feel any symptoms, but at a certain point, a number of a fasting blood sugar or a hemoglobin A1C measurement indicates that they have this disease diabetes, and then they're managed by this oral drug. And the point I'm making here, and then I'll, 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 I'll stop this, is that as with high blood pressure, this kind of view of diabetes as a disease of without symptoms, as a disease of pure risk, could only be possible when the medicine itself was palatable, was not possible when the only way of treating diabetes was to take a needle-based medicine mm -hmm. like insulin. Hey, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, and I just wanted to, I kind of skipped over this uh, earlier, but I'd like to circle back to it. I mean, in some cases, the needle kind of is the thing. And I'm thinking in particular about EpiPens. People may have seen page one stories in the New York Times over in recent years just about how much an EpiPen costs a lot. It costs a lot. It doesn't cost a lot because of the epinephrine in it. I mean, that's been around for a really long time. It really is the company's patented um, needle with a bright orange cap uh, that has a, a, an unusual way of sort of getting the needle gets through the cap in an uh, interesting and apparently proprietary way. Uh, so in this case, like th this particular needle is kind of the thing that I assume drives the cost of the pen. So I'm fascinated by this example. <laughs> I know we, I know we're pretty much out of time here, but you bring up such an important point with EpiPen, and many of the listeners will remember this recent pricing controversy of how this medicine that has been off patent for quite some time is actually the, the epinephrine auto injector EpiPen. Anyone living with anaphylactic responses knows the importance of an EpiPen. It's a life-saving device, but that these prices of this off-patent drug have, have been skyrocketing in recent years. And um, the medicine epinephrine, well, well we, this medicine has been known for more than a hundred years. It was, you know, first, you know, so, so the, the drug itself is off patent. So what was being protected was the proprietary mechanism of developing an auto injector. So in, a needle that would, you know, as soon as you hold the EpiPen over your, your leg, it will, you know, in, inject it into your leg. Um, so 
I'm not suggesting that's not a real innovation, but part of the challenge is that there's a web of combination drugs in which the way that the drug is combined with the needle itself is what prevents competition and promotes higher prices. Mm. And as, as, as the FDA is trying to figure out how to fairly promote competitive markets for, you know, off-patent generic drugs, they get tied up in loopholes oftentimes over these drug-device combinations where mm. the needle becomes the barrier to an affordable essential medicine. All right. We are going to have to stop. This is fascinating stuff. I could talk to you for a lot longer, uh, but we do have to stop. Dr. Jeremy Green is a professor of science, technology, and medicine at Johns, Hop Johns Hopkins University and an author about all those things. We now are going to ask you to support a program that would devote an entire episode to needles. We're going to talk when we come back about people who have really an overwhelming and sometimes incapacitating fear of needles. But meanwhile, support the show when the people ask you to do that. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So as we started to get ready for this show, the producer, Julia Pistella, and I started looking around to see uh, if we could find out like you know, how many people are afraid, like really incapacitatingly afraid of needles. And I'm now conf confident in saying that if you made a list of 100 people you know, there'd be some people on that list who fit that description. And you might not know that. I got a message from somebody I know, not really, really well, who says, I've always had an irrational fear of needles. When I had to get a blood test to get married in New York, I had hysterics until the doctor yelled, do you want to get married or not? I finally acquiesced. I've been lucky to have been relatively healthy, but every single medical procedure I've ever had was preceded by full body shaking caused by my irrational fear of needles. I won't go into details behind the epidural or cataract incidents or my refusal to get flu vaccines, but I certainly learned not to look. So joining us now is a person who knows a lot about this phenomenon, and that is Dr. Megan, Mc, uh, Megan McMurtry, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Guelph and a psychologist at McMaster Children's Hospital. She joins us now. Thank you for taking time out from a busy day. Thank you for having me. So it's probably hard to get statistics on this because people aren't necessarily uh, eager to tell the world how afraid they are at, uh, of needles. I, I think, the, well, we can kind of come to that in just a second. Do, do we have any idea how many people have a significant enough fear that they might actually skip a health step like a vaccine just to avoid them? 
Yeah, so the short answer here is that really about looks like maybe one in 10 individuals are so afraid that they'll delay or avoid evil procedures. But I think we really under, need to understand this in context, which is that needle fear, like some level of it, is really common across the lifespan. So needle fear can range from really low levels to moderate to extremely high. Um, and, you know, we know that the majority of children have some level of needle fear, about half of adolescence, and it does decrease over the lifespan. But for those individuals who really have that very extreme fear, it doesn't necessarily go away on its own. Um, and for some portions, so the one in 10 might delay or avoid um, the vaccinations or other needle procedures, but there's also another group who may have a diagnosis um, of blood injection injury um, phobia. And the best estimates there are somewhere between sort of three and a half, four and a half percent of the population. But the problem is if we only focus on that group is that many people are not gonna present to a mental health professional in order to get that diagnosis. And so that's why I give you the one in 10 um, you know, estimate instead. I think another uh, you just hit on one of the reasons people are reluctant to either seek help or acknowledge the problem because it is associated with childhood. The, you know, some people are going to think that it is uh, almost a prolonged childish behavior to be afraid of needles, which I, I would assume would make it kind of a stigma. Absolutely. So I think people have, you know, have shared with me and have shared more publicly that they feel a sense of shame and, and you know, that, that's too bad. And I would like to sort of work towards not having them feel that way. We do know that needle fear is more common in children, but it certainly does exist across the lifespan. And uh, it's based on retrospective research. But most adults, um, when we speak to them about when their needle fear developed, they report a negative previous experience. And we do know the onset is typically kind of in middle childhood, which is when most sort of vaccination schedules call for the greatest number um, of injections. Uh, and so that may be, you know, a, a culprit there. I do think it's it's just really important to say that just the shaming kind of approach doesn't help. Um, you know, if you've ever been told not to feel a particular way, it's not all that helpful, right? Um, and in fact, can make you just sort of uh, turn away from that individual. And so I think we need to try other strategies. Right. And there's a real risk here. I mean, a physical risk, particularly for, if it's not handled well, uh, a term that comes up a lot is vasovagal syncope. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. people's blood pressure can drop so drastically that they faint, they could fall to the floor if they're, you know, uh, not in the right position. Absolutely. So the thing with the, the individuals that we're talking about who are at the sort of more extreme end of the spectrum, they have a combination of very high anxiety, which is sort of a future-oriented apprehension, and that's going to lead them to try to avoid, right? They also experience an extreme fear and basically a stress response um, when they're in the situation, which can lead to, uh, you know, attempts to escape or really suffering some very negative, um, you know, symptoms because of the stress response. Um, and so that can be, like you mentioned, vasovagal syncope is one example. And really what's happening there um, for those individuals is that their blood pressure and heart rate increase and then sort of suddenly decrease, which leads to a faint. And you can imagine that if you're afraid of needles and that's your experience when you go to get a needle is to, to faint, that would not be helpful in terms of addressing your fear. And unfortunately, because we haven't always... Um, 
really taking the time to make needles the most comfortable uh, procedures that they can be you know, in, in, in infants and children and throughout the lifespan, we're, we're sort of creating this problem, right? So for example, um, you know, children might be held down um, to just quote unquote, get the needle over with. Well, that that's not okay, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we should not be holding anyone down um, to be getting a needle. And while needle procedures are very important in healthcare um, and are used for a variety of purposes, some of which you spoke about with your previous guest, most of them aren't necessarily uh, emergency or life-saving right in that moment. And so we need to do it properly. We need to manage the pain related to needles. We need to manage the fear related to them so that people can feel comfortable and, you know, really trusting in their clinician. And I think there's been lots of improvement um, in that regard, but we're having, you know, obviously within the current context, um, it's a real challenge for everybody. So very quickly, because we are we're short on time here, there's an acronym called CARD, C-A-R-D. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so the CARD system, um, it stands for comfort, ask, relax, and distract. And that can be really helpful for individuals who want to put in place a coping plan to manage their fear and any pain related to needles. And so those, um, maybe you can link to it in your show notes. Um, otherwise, if people Google card system um, for, for needles, they should be able to find it. And it's really about creating this plan um, about how to maximize your comfort, get your questions answered. How can you relax and distract yourself during the procedure? I will say for individuals who are at that extreme um, end where they have lots and lots of fear, exposure-based therapy is likely going to be required um, in which they essentially um, learn to gain confidence that they can face their fears um, and they do this in a very gradual way. And this is really the gold standard uh, for specific phobias, which is a bit of a different approach. Yes. Uh, I wish we had time for more of this, but uh, this has been really interesting. Dr. Megan McMurtry, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Guelph, psychologist at McMaster Children's Hospital. Very quick break here and then right back. Speaking of that D in card, we did hear from one person who who's, has a terrible fear of needles, but whose physician uh, manages to make her laugh right before it gives her the needle. And that seems to help quite a bit. Uh, so uh, we only have about five minutes left. I apologize for the pace we're having to, to keep here. I have to thank Julia Pistel, who's done, done a wonderful job producing this show for us, and Kat Pastor, of course, our amazing technical producer. Right now, we're going to talk to Joanna Corson, a graduate student, student working towards licensure as a clinical mental health counselor and a person who has struggled with needle phobia uh, herself. So welcome to our show. Thank you. And, and tell us your story. Tell us uh, wh what you've been through uh, in your relationship with needles. Yeah. So um, when I was probably around two and a half. Um, I had major, uh, surgery and I don't remember any of it, but from that point on, I was terribly phobic of needles. Um, I, every time I had to go to the doctor, um, I was just in a sheer panic. Um, I would for days be, you know, freaking out about what, what would happen. Um, if I had to get, you know, shots or blood taken, I would just be cowering in the corner. Um, you know, I heard Dr. McMurtry talking about being held down. That happened to me many times. And like, I was the kid, like you were hearing screaming, you know, in the waiting room. Um, 
And it was traumatic. It was really traumatic. And it lasted what, what I felt I was embarrassed because I was a teenager and I was still having those reactions. Um, the well, only thing kind of that worked was, um, again, what Mc, Dr. McMurtrie was talking about. I had um, some other health issues. So I actually had to keep getting blood taken a lot. And so this pure exposure to it eventually lessened the fear, but it was really bad for a very long time. Another thing that teenage girls sometimes want to do is get their ears pierced. How'd that work for you? Yeah, that's, uh, it's an interesting story. Um, I, I was petrified because, you know, involved needles and, um, and I was, I, I, finally worked myself up where I wanted desperately to have it, you know, my ears pierced and something happened where I, I got it. And again, I was like terrified. I was cowering, I was shaking, um, and crying and I got it done, but then they closed up. So I, I was like, I can't do it again. You know, that that's it for me. And so I ended up having to get my tonsils taken out when I was around 13 and my mom said to the surgeon, would you mind piercing her ears while she's under general anesthesia? And the surgeon looked baffled, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's how I ended up getting my ears permanently pierced because I, I couldn't do it when I was conscious. That is an amazing story. So, um, you know, obviously this has interested you enough and moved you enough so that uh, you're going to make uh, it sort of part of your life's work, it seems like, um, Mm -hmm. being a mental health counselor. Um, I don't know if somebody's listening right now, and apparently there are people listening right now who are really afraid of needles. What would you say to them, uh, particularly if they've avoided, say, getting an important vaccine? I mean, I would just say that um, they're not alone you know, this is, is something that, you know, people struggle with all the time. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's still incredibly, incredibly vital and important to be getting, you know, the vaccines that we need, but to not, you know, to not feel like they're alone in that process and to also, you know, stand up for themselves if they need certain things to make them more comfortable in the situation, you know, to, to figure out what what they can do to get them through that experience. Yeah, I'm kind, um, I'm kind of amazed. We only have a minute, so we can't go long. But I'm amazed yeah. that it's not more standard that, okay, here's a prescription for five lorazepam and here's some topical cream. I mean, I just, I, I would I would think that would just be de rigueur. Yeah, um, it, it wasn't for me. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't my experience. Um, I, you know, I think depending on, you know, different doctors are going to have different ways of dealing with it and some are going to be better than others. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there's topical, you know, numbing creams, there's medications, there's, you know, a lot of things that can help get you through it. And then for me, I still, I still can't look when they, when they, you know, (laughs) inject me or take my blood. So, you know, that's okay. I just tell them, don't tell me just do it. I don't want to (laughs) know. All right. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty, that seems pretty standard in the people that we heard from Joanna Corson. Thank you so much. I wish, wish we had more time graduate student working towards licensure as a clinical mental health counselor. Thanks for listening today. People are going to ask you to support this kind of show. Really helps if you do support us if you make your pledge right now during our hour. Counts a little bit more 